Hi, we're back. Yeah, it's been a minute. We're back. We're in a closet. Hi, we're yes. back. Hi, we're recording in Colorado where we both live now. We both are here. We fi- <laughs> I finally did it. I finally convinced her to move to Colorado. And she left uh, sunny Sacramento and drove for two days. And when she got to Colorado, it was 10 degrees. So that was great. And then it was um, 60 about two days later. So, you know, they just really wanted to make sure that she knew what she was getting into when she moved. So welcome, Leah, to the great state of Colorado. Yep, yep. And now it's cooling down again, although we didn't get snow yesterday. We did the day before. We got a little bit of snow. Um, And good news is this is uh, so this last episode that we recorded that you're about to listen to. I think it was recorded in may or june 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 we say in the first couple minutes uh, that's how i know okay so it was in june and we just finished editing it and we're gonna have that thrown up now but we just wanted to add in this little note that it is now <laughs> november mm-hmm. um there's been a bit of i i hiatus to say the yeah. least uh that was uh totally my fault like uh, you said we edited it <laughs> I edited it. Yes. <laughs> and the reason that I didn't finish editing episode 13 back in June was hashtag depression. Depression. Um, I just kind of stopped asking after a couple of weeks and was like, all right, I'll let her get back on it. Yeah. It's, oh man, we're going to have a lot to talk about with Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes because I was that say, was part of the I feel reason. Like, I feel like that was the catalyst, you know? Like oh, I finished yeah. reading it and then I was like, hey, Lids, you doing okay? And the answer I, was just crickets. Mm-hmm. I got halfway through and then I didn't read anything for a month. Yes. Which is very, very unusual. Very unusual. I'm like, Hank. <laughs> So, um, what are you doing button in here? So we have a we have a visitor, Hank, come okay, on in. Come on in. Come on in. Um this is uh, you, you can't see him, but we have a dog in here. His name is Hank. He is my roommate, Jen's dog. So in the past couple of months I've moved into a new house with um my roommates, which includes Lydia here, and we have taken on my roommate's dogs while she is out of the country dealing with a family emergency. And one such dog is Hank. He is a uh, corgi chihuahua mix and he cannot ever be alone ever so he has just burst his way into the closet because he could hear us but not see us and that was a problem hank would you like to say a few words you heard it here first folks but anyway yes we are back it's after november this hiatus it is november 11th, 11th right now uh joe biden won the presidential election to the surprise and great relief, I think, to us all. Yeah. Um, And of course, Donald Trump is throwing a toddler temper tantrum. Anyway, we just wanted to apologize. Yeah. So after this episode, there will be a new one concluding the Hunger Games in about two weeks. Um, And then two weeks after that, hopefully our episode of Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Um, And after that, we will take a short break. Ah. Short break. And then start the next book. But... We do also have to do our bonus episode of Twilight from Edward's perspective. Yes, which Midnight I Sun. own. Yes. So um, we will get on that too. That one will probably take us a little bit more time after the uh, bonus episode of Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, just so you have time to read it. Mm-hmm. And I can flip through it again um, and make some notes. Boy, oh boy, that one was a, a fun ride. Yeah, so uh, that one might come mid season next book we read depending on how fast i can read stuff and 
when I get a job.、Um, Yay! Because moving entails all of that, and、uh, there's a lot to do.、Um, Always. But、Hi. yeah, we're we're back.、Uh, go follow us on Twitter and let us know what you want us to read next.、Mm-hmm. Because we have no idea. We have no idea, and now that we're living in the same house, it will be really fun. Yeah, and I wonder if this will be our new recording venue. Yeah, this might be. I don't know. It depends on the acoustics of this space.、Mm. Um, Coming to you live from my closet. Yeah, I'm no expert on this. I just know, like, yeah, closets. People say make great recording studios. And great. I mean, we're still recording on iPhones, so yeah. Who wants to sponsor us? <laughs> yeah, if anybody wants to sponsor us, so that we can buy new microphones and a real setup, and、mm-hmm. you know, just general professional stuff,、uh, maybe、huh. pay some hosting fees for this next year.、Um, that'd be great. Alrighty, well, enjoy our time warp back to June discussing. These chapters of the Hunger Games, which I can't actually remember which chapters they were, but I know we are close to the end. So,、um, enjoy what I believe is going to be. Sorry, my dog just popped his nose in and is very concerned as to why we're in the closet.、Um, but enjoy. <laughs> enjoy our discussion of these chapters, and、uh, I'm honestly looking forward to listening to this episode too because I don't even remember who. Who was I in June of 2020? I hardly remember. Yeah, I don't even know. I don't know either. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. And here we go. Hello, and welcome back to Let's Unpack That. It's a podcast where we two college grads analyze books that we read in middle school from literary and sociopolitical perspectives. I'm Lydia. I'm Nina, and what a fucking time to be listening to a podcast about what post-apocalyptic、uh, world time and fucking rebellions and yeah, wow. The time that we're recording this now,、um, it's June of 2020. So if you're listening to this in the future. That's what we're currently living through.、Um, but if you're listening to this now-ish, within the next couple of days, once we've released this, a lot of shit's been going down.、Uh, we definitely want to mention what's going on in the United States right now, which is where Lydia and I are both from. And actually, it's become a bit of a worldwide movement here as well. I have seen some things that have cropped up around the rest of the world in support of the United States right now, in terms of what's going on, but. If you don't know what's going on, personally, I think it's a catalyst of a lot of things that have gone on,、mm-hmm. um, an ongoing racial discrepancy, institutional racism that has been instituted by much of the law enforcement within the United States. You know, even though we've had the civil rights movement, we've had so many different laws speaking out against inequality. There is still a very Firm and definite divide between those who are people of color and then people who are white. And within the last few weeks, been about a week now, I believe, when it really kicked off. Within the last few weeks, there's been a very significant uprising of protesting, rioting, and just very much widespread anger on the largest scale that I've ever seen.、Mm-hmm. Just over this inequality and especially the injustice that the legal system and the law enforcement tend to bring on to people of color. 
last week, a man by the name of George Floyd was murdered. Let's not, <laughs> let's not uh, soften any of the words. Yeah. He was murdered by a police officer who kneeled on his neck for over eight minutes, despite the fact that Mr. Floyd was saying that he could not breathe. And he was caught on camera and released. In the immediate aftermath of that murder, the cop was not charged with anything. Um, he was not, he was suspended, I believe, with pay at first and then went ahead and they eventually did fire him. Mm-hmm. And um, as of the day that we're recording this, all four of those cops, the three that watched and the one that actually knelt on his neck, are in are being charged. Yes, and that comes after um, over a week after the fact. Mm-hmm. And what's also frustrating is that it took them a few days to formally charge um, the police officer. So it's been a, over a week now and um, it did take a couple of days for charges to be brought against the police officer and actually originally they only brought on third degree murder charges which um, they upped it they today they finally increased it to second degree murder and just a little bit of a difference so in most of the united states you have a couple of hierarchies of the charge of homicide essentially so first degree murder obviously is the most serious of all homicide it involves any intentional murder that is willing willful and premeditated with malice um essentially ahead of time premeditation is the big thing that says okay you were planning to commit this murder and you were you know going to carry it out so that involves a lot of you know that just essentially the big word there is premeditation Second degree murder is essentially an intentional killing that was not premeditated. It's also considered a depraved heart murder, which is a killing caused by a reckless disregard for human life. So it's usually it's not a, a kind of a catch-all category for all intentional or reckless killings that do not fall under the state's definition of first degree murder. So essentially premeditation. And in this case, right now, as of this recording, the police officer who has been charged is charged with second-degree murder because I believe that they are not seeing that intentional premeditation of, you know, planning to kill this man at the time that he and uh, George Floyd first met and interacted. The strange thing about Minnesota is that they have what is called a third-degree murder, um, and that was originally what he was charged with. It was essentially the unlawful killing of a human being when perpetrated without any design to affect death by a person engaged in perpetration of or in the attempt to perpetrate any felony other than. So that one's kind of weird. It's, It's kind of, in Minnesota, it's essentially the without the intent to affect the death of any person. So essentially causing death without meaning to. It's very weird. And originally, again, that was what the police officer was charged with. And I think the big thing here is that a lot of people are like, how how could he not know that kneeling on somebody's neck for eight minutes could be considered murder? Uh, and actually, originally, the state's uh, medical examiner ruled that he did not die of asphyxiation, but heart failure, which is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> if you see the independent autopsy, it does show, hey, by the way, he died of asphyxiation because he was, you know, being kneeled on for almost 10 minutes or almost nine minutes. So it's crazy. And in the aftermath of all of this, we have seen an incredible uprising. It's really amazing, I think. Yeah. Um, just some 
millions really fucking cool activism millions yeah. of people across almost every continent yeah not just in the united states now it's in all 50 states which is mm-hmm. insane when was the last time you saw all 50 states agree on anything and then yeah it's it's across the country i think i saw something new zealand was protesting mm-hmm. there um, were big protests in paris defining defying uh the stay-at-home orders there yeah that was a big deal yeah. Yeah, all this is coming on the heels of COVID-19, which, you know, some people are like, oh, look how the media controls you. It's like, well, eh. I actually I have a theory about why now, because the killing of a black man is not a new phenomenon. This is something that's been going on for a very long time. You know, we we saw with uh, Trayvon Martin. We saw it with Eric Gardner. We we see it all the time. And for some reason, this particular moment this particular murder is what has inspired millions to march and really say enough is a fucking enough we need to do something and my theory about it is because everybody has been so confined by COVID-19 tensions have already been really high and raised and stressed so I think we were always destined for this kind of race war but I think that the onset of COVID-19 has expedited that process a lot and it's incredible yeah it, it really is i have to agree with you on that because it, sure this may have happened eventually but how many more people would have had to die before all 50 states joined together to march for this also like we've been stressed so stressed in this country uh for so long and i think part of that has brought us closer to one another in community Um, Mm -hmm. Like, there's been so much emphasis since, like, February, March on helping the community and being a good neighbor and uniting. And, I mean, if a death like this didn't spark anything, that would surprise me at a time like this, at a time when so many of us are unemployed, high, and don't have a lot to do and feel kind of lost this is a cause that we know this is a cause that we've seen before and that really we have the time to get behind now yeah i was gonna say you know it's not as if oh we're only doing this because we're bored Mm -hmm. or whatever x y and z reasons we're doing it because it needs to happen but this is like the perfect situation for an uprising to happen just given the circumstances that we've all been in this was always coming right but everything else is falling apart so why not now exactly um the economy is in shambles and (laughs) we're like entering another great depression and whatever (laughs) today my roommate asked me if um it was too early to drink i think it was like 11 30 or noon (laughs) and i was like too early to drink in this economy and then we both had a drink so (laughs) that's what we did uh I think on on a podcast about dystopia and the whole Hunger Games mm. idea, I think we'd obviously we had to mention this um, because it's a big thing going on and we can't ignore it. And also because like we we've talked before about how in a way the Hunger Games taught us that we are capable of rebellion and that we are capable mm-hmm. of making mm-hmm. change and making big change. Right. And I've seen a lot of tweets this past week saying things like if you learned anything from YA or from dystopia or from the Hunger Games or from any rebels you read about as a teen or even from Star Wars you should know by now that standing by idly isn't going to do anything and that when things need to change it requires revolution and revolution is a team effort 
here's the thing, and here's something that I think might be the flaw in a lot of these stories that we hear, is that there are no heroes in a revolution. There might be leaders, there might be certain individuals who stand out, but there are no heroes. Captain America is not coming to save the United States. Katniss is not going to come and take out the current administration with an arrow. MLK is not coming back from the dead. So we the people are responsible for the revolution as a team, and we honestly cannot afford to wait. This week, seeing images of police officers in riot gear and National Guard and military deployment... I I really felt like I understood for the first time the title Peacekeeper. Mm. Because wow. in the Hunger Games, the police are called peacekeepers. And they basically have authority to do anything. We talked earlier in our episode about Rue, about how they killed black children without impunity. And they were almost above the law because they are the peacekeepers. Here's the thing that we're seeing said a lot now. There is no peace without justice. And Mm -hmm. yet, too many times we've skipped over justice for the favor, in in favor of a quiet, comfortable peace for a few people. So, if you're uncomfortable, that's a good thing. Good. Um, It means you're learning, and it means that, at least for now, you won't fall back into complacency, because that's... A main worry with this situation is that mm-hmm. what happens when the protests die down? What happens when the protests stop? Does the support stop? Does the rallying stop? Does the signing petitions and sending emails and calls to public officials stop? It shouldn't. And we should keep doing everything in our power as the people for as long as it's needed. Right. So with that, we're going to leave links in the episode notes to resources for information, uh, donation sites, and petitions that you can sign. Nina already went to a protest the other night. Uh, I donated money. Yep. And so just do what you can, uh, even if it's just sharing information. By the way, check that it's truthful. Yeah. And also, I just found this out today. Uh, there are ways that you can give money to causes by just watching youtube videos with the ads on because those creators are donating the ad revenue and apparently this is such a weird thing uh k-pop stands who know the algorithm better than anyone have boosted those videos so they're making even more money now Um, that's fucking amazing did you see that um what was it like white lives matter was trending on twitter and then like k-pop fans went in and just like completely demolished it (laughs) made fun of it and like any anytime you saw that it was like some satirical whatever like it wasn't serious at all um even though it might have potentially been created for it so go k-pop fans Mm -hmm. um also note here that when we say obviously we support black lives matter yeah obviously you haven't gotten that by now if you haven't gotten that by now rewind let's start over let's talk about it we're not going to talk about it black lives matter period to those who are responding with well all lives matter i understand the sentiment that you're trying to say like hey human life matters and yes that that is the point like all life matters but here's the thing about saying black lives matter over all lives matter and why you shouldn't respond with all lives matter because i think it comes from a misunderstanding with believing that black lives matter more than any other lives um which is something 
that comes up, you know, people say like blue lives matter over black lives matter, so on and so forth. But the point of black lives matter isn't to say that black lives should be or are more important than other other lives. It's essentially pointing out that there is a an inequality in this country, pointing out the fact that black lives are relatively undervalued in the United States. They're more likely to be ended by police. They're more likely to end up in um, prison. You know, they're less likely to receive quality education and medical care. They are undervalued in the United States. And saying black lives matter means that the country needs to recognize that inequality and bring an end to it, right? So we're mm-hmm. not trying to say, and we're not trying to promote the idea that anyone is equal over another. What we're trying to do is pull up our black brothers and sisters to be on an equal playing field with the rest of us. Right. There's another, I'm sorry, I'm going on a tangent here, but there's another meme, uh, another meme that I saw that had a picture of a courtroom cop, a lawyer and a defendant um, standing together. And all three of the individuals were black. And the quote on the meme said, it's the choices that define your life, not your circumstance. And I just wanted to point out there, there's a couple of things wrong with that idea too. Like, oh, maybe black people are more in prison because of the choices they make. Let, let's let's dive into that for here just for a second because I've actually studied this a lot. First of all, <laughs> if you've ever read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, he is a, he is a black attorney in the Southern United States. He's in Alabama amazing book by the way please read his book it's fantastic there was also a movie out which is free to rent on amazon for the month of june so do that too but he actually writes about how he showed up to court to defend his client um you know was dressed full in a suit very obviously professionally dressed and a security guard at the courthouse stopped him and berated him and said you're not allowed to be in here he was in the courtroom Mr. Stevenson said, oh, no, I I am supposed to be here. This is my courtroom. And the security guard said, no, you are supposed to wait outside on the defendant's bench or until everyone is until they call you in or some paraphrasing that a little bit, but essentially saying, no, you don't belong in here because we're going to call you in with the rest of the defendants when your trial starts. Go sit outside with the rest of everyone else on trial. And Mr. Stevenson had to say, no, sir, I'm sorry. I think you misunderstand me. I'm the lawyer (laughs) in this case. So I think that that black attorney in that photo would say, I've definitely been stopped. I've definitely been frisked. I've definitely been, you know, under the assumption that I am not the professional that I'm dressed as that I'm meant to be um, because there is that overlying misconception. Um, Also, you would also argue that the person who is in handcuffs, who is being defended, likely didn't have access to the same quality education that many of us do, likely came from a broken home and maybe has suffered from some kind of trauma because of that and didn't have the resources to make the same choices that maybe that lawyer did or maybe you and I did. And that's not saying anything other than what's backed up by statistics. Remember that that is this is a this is a community of people. This is a wide population of people that has been historically held back from the beginning of this country's birth has been essentially made to start the race a hundred yards back and attempt to catch up ever since the beginning of this country's founding. So keep that in mind when you're thinking, okay, maybe I should say all lives matter instead of black lives matter. All lives do matter, yes, but here's the point of black lives matter is that we need to end this inequality and catch them back up to the rest of us because this this just needs to stop. Yeah, and I think part of the reason that I th- 
think people say all lives matter is they're they're comfortable valuing all like oh i love everybody i don't care about the color of your skin i don't care about any of that where you come from it's all the same to me when really it is definitely not and it's sometimes i think it can be a discomfort with saying with acknowledging black lives with acknowledging that a black people have been held back um right because often of white people uh it's like finding out that your ancestors were slave owners and not being able to process that it's a legacy of that that a lot of white people still hold and i think we need to deal with that like i found out a couple months ago my ancestors who fought in the revolutionary war probably had slaves and that's that's a fucking uncomfortable fact yeah but i also know like that's not me personally but in Mm -hmm. any way if i can give reparations to these folks and fight for them now i'm damn well gonna yeah exactly not to mention, you and I are both Latina, yeah. so we know about inequality. Yeah. Yeah, fuck yeah. And and here's the thing is that you and I appear to be white. If you just look at us, we look like we're white. Mm-hmm. So we've never had the problem, really, I think that is so obvious as some, as some people who are darker skinned than us have had. Right. So if we can stand there and say that we can stand up for somebody, we definitely will. Yeah. That brings in another important point, which is like... Uh, also saying black lives matter doesn't mean latinx lives doesn't matter or asian lives don't matter or that those people haven't been held back at all it's just the disproportionate killing and imprisonment and oh yeah just injustice against black people is something that we all need to fight against right now this won't be the last civil rights movement without a doubt oh no like there will be so many more after this even if all police are abolished and even if all crime goes away and even if all of this mess ends up with every black family who has ever lost anyone due to police violence gets their person back like this will not be the last revolution no that's just the nature of revolutions and it's just we're going to look back on this someday like generation x and the boomers look back on the 60s and what side are we going to say that we were on that's partially why i went to the protest on on monday because i i looked at myself and i was like what do i want to tell myself and my kids 30 years from now you know i want to say that i've participated not only because I want to I I mean I don't do it to boost my own morale but because it's something I honestly believe in and I can say I support it all I want but if I'm not there showing up what good is it and that's not to say you have to show up to contribute again that's right yeah in my case show up I I had time yeah I had I had I had time I had the resources I I had the availability to go so I went Mm-hmm. There was no reason for me not to. No, me. I have asthma and I um, live with an old lady, so. Love it. But I got that love unemployment it. money. <laughs> hey. Uh. <sighs> love it. Stay safe, everybody. Um, you know, if you're out there protesting, walking the streets, just stay alert. Have a, have a plan to get out safely if things turn violent. Those of you who are out there doing the right thing. Have a backup plan. Make sure someone knows where you are. Have a time that you're supposed to meet back up with everybody and just stay safe out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and those of us who are at home doing what they can, you know, again, we're going to post those resources in the show notes. 
if you have any questions, contact us or contact somebody that you're close with who might be able to give you a little bit more information. Mm-hmm. So, But don't ask your black friends to explain everything to you. God. Yeah, please don't. Google I've it. said it before and I'll say it again on this podcast. Black people don't owe us anything. Anything. I think the last time you said that it was it was Native American people. Oh yeah, maybe I did say Native American people last time. I don't People remember. of color don't owe us anything. So, that aside, living in this revolution now, um, I think it's good to switch gears now and talk about a book. Um, But before we talk about the book, I want to talk about the other book. The book, the book, the book that came out on, like, the 20th or whatever it was. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. That's about all I can say about that. (laughs) Just five seconds (laughs) of long pause was my... Yeah, pretty much. Just like the the what? It's and I've said this to you before, but I'll say it now for our listeners. This is either going to be by far the best book that I've read all year or this is going to be the biggest fucking train wreck. I'm about halfway through it now. I'm looking at it now. I'm about halfway and I have no idea what's going on yeah. or what, what direction Collins is going for. And I'm rooting for Collins so hard right now. I'm like, please, 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 you know, make this all come together in a way that makes sense. But like, fuck, you know, it's like... It doesn't make sense right now. It doesn't make sense right now. And I just, I'm trusting her. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know, Lydia. Yeah. And what do you think? Uh, I think I haven't been able to pick it up in a little while. Um, and I'm only no? a third of the way through, but I, I will tell you in this episode that I knew like three or four pages in that all of my predictions that I made way back when in that one episode about the potential that this prequel has and what it could be and what it could teach us as adults who read YA when we were young and who now want to revisit the series, I was wrong. I'm going to say it now. I was wrong. Totally wrong. <laughs> and I don't know where it's going. Uh, but that's all we, we're going to say about the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes in this episode. Two episodes from now will be our complete review with a non-spoiler section and a spoiler section. That that may end up being a part one and a part two, depending ah! on how this book ends and how we feel about it. Because, yeah, we might have to just like, rant for two whole hours. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. Anyway, uh, no spoilers, please. Please and thank yeah, you. Yeah, no spoilers um, yet. But yeah, I, I'm just kind of... You know that... <laughs> I know you didn't watch Spongebob growing up, but you know that one meme of Patrick where he's sitting on the side of the cliff and his mouth is just open. It's like the size of his, it's just like the size of his body. And he's like, that's kind of how I feel Oh yeah, right I now. know that one. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I'm about to get hit with something big and I'm not going to like it. You know, I feel like I've just been perpetually living that state since probably about the 10th grade. It's just escalated since then. Yes. Yes. So. And that's our well, yikes Well, any them. Um, That's our, wow, this whole fucking world is a yikes moment yeah, at this point. Yeah, whole fucking Who world. Knew? So today we're reading chapters 25 and 26 of The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. Sue, you still have time to hit us up? We've got it. Our next episode will be the last chapter and just our overall thoughts and a couple of other things that we will add in probably as we go spur the moment because really what else is podcasting meant to be? Yeah. Let's do Who it. Knows Who knows what'll happen in the next two weeks that we'll have to talk about in the context of the Hunger Games. We are coming to you live from our bunker in uh, Kansas. Oh, Mr. Fucking, I'm not going to wear a mask, but I'm going to go hide Fuck. in the bunker because people are angry outside. 
Hey, get fucked. See, he wasn't Thank scared you. until the black That's people all. got angry. Hey. Donald Trump is a racist. Can't wait to watch yeah, him die. We've, we've always known this. Ah. Chapter 25, where we last left off. Cato had barreled past Katniss and Peeta running from mutations. So, in this chapter, chapter 25, Katniss and Peeta run from the mutations and jump onto the cornucopia with Cato to escape them. Uh, she remembers at the last second that Peeta is injured and she goes back for him because he's having trouble walking. And Katniss realizes Real smooth, that Katniss. the mutations are made to look like the dead tributes. They walk on their hind legs and they organize like people and they have the eyes and the coloration of each tribute. And so they make it up onto the cornucopia, but Cato has now recovered from his frantic run and holds Peta over the edge in a headlock. So Peta is bleeding from a mutation bite in his calf. Cato taunts Katniss, saying that if she shoots him, Peta will go over the edge with him. So Peta draws an X in blood on Cato's hand, and Katniss takes the hint, shooting Cato's hand to make him let go, and then he falls to the mutts. Katniss makes a tourniquet for Peta's leg, which it occurred to me this is why he actually loses his leg, not the cut that Cato gave him. And they wait all night for Cato to die. And in the morning when they can see, Katniss shoots an arrow into the cornucopia to kill him out of pity. So once Cato is dead, they wait for the victory to be declared, but it doesn't come. Instead, Claudius Templesmith announces that the rule change has been revoked, and Katniss realizes that it was a ploy all along so that she and Peta would get together and they'd have this dramatic showdown at the end. So she does a logical thing, and she and Peta threaten to both die with the Nightlock berries. And just as they put them in their mouths, Claudius Templesmith announces that they've both won. Yay! This is such a great scene. This is the chapter. Well, let's talk about this. Let's yeah. unpack this a little Ton bit. Ton happens. Um, starting off with those mutations. Ton happens. We've gone from several nothing chapters to probably an episode that I'm going to have to cut down from an hour and a half again. Well, seeing as we've already been talking about BLM for about yeah. 40 minutes yeah, now. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so... The mutations, or mutations, or whatever, they basically turned the tributes into werewolves. And I didn't realize that this line had stuck with me, but it's kind of something that has stuck with me since I first read the book. PETA says, you don't think those could be their real eyes, on page 334. Yikes. I don't know. Here's the thing. I don't know if the Capitol would desecrate the bodies of the dead tributes by taking their eyes and putting them into mutts, but I think here there's no doubt that they took DNA. I always thought of it as some kind of reanimation mixed with the mutation, somehow. I mean, obviously the science is not something we're capable of even Mm -hmm. considering, but I always thought it was some kind of reanimation of their dead bodies, like a re- like Like flicking the switch back um, on in their brains- at, at, to some very, very low level and combining them with the bodies of the I wolves. thought it might but have something to do with you could be right as well. and with gene splicing. Mm. So we've seen the, pa- the capital's power to manipulate organic things before, and we know that it isn't limitless. Because we talked about how whereas the movie shows them digitally placing the mutts and then magically they become real, from the book we know that technology is not possible. They come out of a hole in the ground, they go back into a hole in the ground. I want to talk for a second about DNA ownership. And it's, it's a complex issue that in this case I think goes along with bodily autonomy. With 
today's advances in genetic modification and even the copywriting of certain genes, the right of the individual to their own DNA can get kind of murky. Like, I don't know if you read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, uh, but basically her cancer cells were used without her consent or knowledge in research and basically are considered the first immortal cells. They just kept reproducing and kept being able to be used for experiments, uh, and she didn't even know. She was a black woman. I would also just like to note here that I have a lot of feelings about DNA, um, especially as it relates to crime um, and legal stuff. So I'm just going to plug here. Upload your DNA to GenMatch. Help identify Jane Doe's and unknown offenders and get people their names back. Anyway, I did it. We should all do it. Have a nice what day. is that site sponsored by? It is an independently sponsored, independently okay. sponsored website. So it's essentially a database where, because, for example, twenty three andme and ancestry dot com is not accessible by law enforcement, you can voluntarily uh, upload your DNA sequence to the GEDmatch database, and then law enforcement has the ability to use, essentially, build out a family tree. You know, let's say, for example, they find a Jane Doe in Virginia somewhere and somebody in, I don't know, New York um, uploads their DNA to GenMatch and through connecting the dots by uploading Jane Doe's DNA and your DNA propping up, you can find out that like this is like a fourth cousin or something like that and just kind of help to narrow down that field and eventually finding that person's immediate family and giving them their identity back. Um, It also works for prosecuting criminals, such as um, if there is somebody who raped another person and left DNA behind, they can upload that DNA. It's essentially backwards creating your family Mm -hmm. tree so that they can find out who you are to prosecute you for the crime. Or, you know, God forbid, if you are an unidentified person somewhere and they need to get you home, they'll be able to to give you your name back. Here's a question that I have about that and that I think a lot of people are going to be wary about in this day and age where we know that a lot of the leaders of the Ferguson protests were tracked down and killed. In what cases can law enforcement access your information? Is it just to identify Jane Doe's and John Doe's and missing persons or would they have access to that information in the case of, oh, this is a person of interest. Maybe this person is the leader of Antifa and we're declaring them a terrorist. No, it's it's going to be just for the identification of the John Doe's, the Jane Doe's, or um, that sort of, you know, identifying a criminal. Um, there's a whole big page of information that I could read off. I won't go into it, but if you're looking into it, go to GEDmatch, read what they have to say. You know, it's it's usually several degrees of separation if they use your information at all. It's important, you know, it really is to give these people their, their names back. And I'll put it out there that my information is on mm-hmm. JetMatch. So if they needed my information for further... So they would also contact you, let's say, if there's a potential fifth cousin link between me and another individual. And they're trying to narrow down to immediate family members and, and my information happens to come up. They would contact me directly and ask for my permission to further test my DNA. So that would be when I would send their lab directly a swab of some kind or something like that. So, And it's all behind screen names. It's all behind 
it, there's a lot of privacy that does go into it. And again, it okay, is voluntary. Good. Yeah, because people are very wary of that sort of thing. And rightfully so, I think, with yeah, police absolutely. have way too much power. And I mean, if they could access the DNA of literally anybody just because they want to, I think that would be very dangerous. Same reason why I think a government database of all the DNA of all the citizens is also dangerous. But it also begs the question, like, who owns your DNA and is your DNA your own? There have been multiple cases of, like, HeLa cells, I already mentioned, from Henrietta Lacks, cases where a certain person's cells have solved a problem and they have not gotten a cut of that or any credit. This version, the mutations are definitely an extreme of where that can go if you literally have no ownership over your body or over your DNA at all. And here's Mm. what I realized while reading this section is tributes we already established don't have ownership of their own bodies. They have no autonomy once they're reaped. And even though their bodies are supposedly shipped home to their families, Their families, apparently, because of what we see here with the mutations, don't get exclusive rights to the corpses. The dead belong to the capital. There is no freedom even in death. And so I think the capital in this case definitely used the DNA and could potentially, Mm -hmm. if they really tried, clone the tributes. They have that much information. It owns their lives. It owns their dying moments. It owns their memories, and it owns their DNA after they're dead. And that's super, super creepy. Right. No, it's definitely... And it's disturbing, not only to think about, but it's disturbing for, as Katniss kind of experiences, uh, for their survivors to be experiencing Mm -hmm. that. Basically saying, this is what you are to us. You are animals to us, and you will not be free even in death. Ugh! Chills. Okay. Yikes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot Mm -hmm. about the labs. Quite weirdly, in Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, we actually see some of the labs. So we won't discuss that in this episode. No spoilers. But that's going to be interesting to explore in the context of what these mutations look like. So yeah. Can we talk about Kato again? Oh, absolutely. I would love to talk about Kato. So the last moments that I was thinking Mm. of were in the movie. Ah, the folly of mixing up the book and the movie and forgetting that one thing is in one and one thing is in the other one. So Kato doesn't change. Unlike the movie, Kato doesn't get a character arc at the end. He doesn't evolve like we said he would in the last episode. He doesn't die trying to avoid being part of the games. He doesn't, he, he's the same proud asshole he's been the entire games. He doesn't have a moment of saying, right, it's not worth it. I am like, I've been trained to fight my whole life. What will I have after this? Who will I be? He doesn't have that struggle. Uh, Says on page 336, while he stopped laughing, his lips are set in a triumphant smile. Mm. And his last moments, he's saying, please kill me. But I don't think even that signals a change in Kato. It's just desperation to finally be at the end. Yeah, he's been tortured all night. This was really disappointing to me. Oh, I totally, yeah, definitely. Because... In the, in the movie, it's this very big scene. And actually, I want to talk a little bit about Cato's death in the movie. He, he essentially says, um, 
something along the lines of that's all I'm mm-hmm. good for is killing and death. That's all I'm good for. And remember, Cato is a tribute from the career district. So he's literally been trained his entire life for these moments. So I actually wanted to throw in a couple things here about um, Cato's speech and his death in the movie. Um, and I actually, I pulled these answers from Quora uh, because I really loved these answers and I think they put them together in a very succinct way. The question itself, if, if you've never been on Quora, it's essentially Q&A, kind of similar to Yahoo Answers. And essentially the question that was asked was, in the Hunger Games movie, what was Cato's speech at the end and what was the point of it? You know, essentially the speech wasn't in the book and it changes Cato's character mm-hmm. a lot, which it definitely does in the movie. So the first answer that I wanted to read is by a user named Anjali Karana. But essentially she writes that at the final conflict scene of the cornucopia, Cato has a brief babbling and surprisingly humanizing monologue. This is the moment where he has Peta in the uh, in the headlock and Katniss aims her bow at him. He tells her to go ahead and shoot as they will both fall and die and she'll be left the victor. Initially in the movie, his tone is somewhat mocking, but as he goes on, Cato begins to break and speak rather hysterically, crying along the lines of, that's all I'm good for, right? For all of his strength, his size, and bravado, he's still just mm. a child. So essentially, even though he, he is this big killing machine, he's still just a child, and he's confused, scared, and just as terrified of death as the rest of them. His terror has granted him in a sudden insight into the pointlessness of his life. He's just a product of the capital's schemes and manipulations. His words suggest that the real enemy, the one whose heroes have actually have to take down, is the state um, and the thing that has turned him into this, this glorified killing machine. It reframes the movie's conflict and primes the audience for Katniss's final act of defiance afterwards, which is, again, pretty fantastic. So I, I liked that. And then I also liked another answer by a user, uh, George Tang. And he writes that I think that the speech at the end speaks much more to humanizing Cato in a very real and tragic way than to contextualize district revolution or Cato's struggles in his life. Cato says, paraphrase, kill me, I'm dead anyway, no matter what happens, that's all I'm good for, right? Um, Cato is still very much an 18-year-old boy. He has maintained his alpha attitude throughout the games when he has allies with him. Regardless of whether he had to kill them eventually, Cato obviously viewed them as friends, traveling companions, and people who were sharing this experience with him, and maybe more with Glimmer. Um, After Clove died, he was left by himself. Uh, One can only imagine how lonely that feeling actually is. Uh, After training for this whole moment, for this moment for his whole life, and he's so close to winning and realizing how truly alone he is. You know, I mean, think about it. Cato's been with other people his entire life. He's been training with other people who are just like him his entire life. Now he's alone. Um, And back again to directly quote, trudging around the arena in an ever-increasing darkness, trying to find food, trying to find Katniss and Peeta, and struggling with his loneliness. He realizes that even if he does does win, what then? His entire existence has been dedicated to that moment. 18 straight years of watching other winners bask in the glory. Six straight years of being eligible to volunteer, honing his skills and his body so he could get to the maximum advantage possible. And for what? You know, his entire life has been spent getting to this point and he feels no excitement, no adrenaline, just fear. Not fear of losing and dying, but fear of winning and having to face life with no purpose. If Katniss and Peeta win, not only are their own lives transformed, but the lives of everyone around them as well. What does Cato have to look forward to? In many ways, Cato is screwed worse than any of the other tributes. If he loses, he dies. If he wins, he's dead anyways. I like both of those comments together. They were actually, the second one was 
negating the first comment saying, no, I don't think that's it. I think they're both right. I think he's realizing I've only been created to be this machine. And also, what is my purpose going to be after this? It's definitely a tone that was missing in the first book that we absolutely should have heard more from because that is, it's very, a very poignant point. You know, it's what is his life good for now? What do any of the tributes who are from career districts, what do they do after they've won? You know, what do any of them do? It's definitely a very, it's a humanizing moment. And it's also just kind of asking the point of what's the plan? How empty is this existence really? I mean, for, it's two kinds of emptiness, I think. For one, it's Katniss who is either going to starve to death or spend her whole life fighting starvation. That's kind of her whole purpose. And then on the other hand, almost as a foil, it's the careers who may have enough to eat, may don't, you know, they don't have to struggle to survive, but what else is there besides Mm -hmm. winning the games? It's kind of an interesting parallel and it shows that no district is above the other. Really, everyone in the end is screwed. I really wonder, and I think I need to look up more interviews before our uh, last episode on the Hunger Games is how involved Suzanne Collins was in the movies. Yeah. Like the question that the Quora asks is, did she approve the speech and why or why not? And why isn't it in the book? Right. Because, I mean, last episode we talked about how Katniss has built up Cato to be her entire enemy, her entire world almost in the arena. And he's... He is the big bad yeah, that she has to take down. he's not, and he never fully reaches that moment of being just a child, which he really does, like the answerer st- said in the movie. He's just a scared child. And realizing the yeah. pointlessness of it all. Yeah. I mean, how did you take Cato's speech in the movie? What did, what did you see? I thought it, it was heartbreaking. Like, this kid oh, is... Yeah. Well, he's a kid, and he's been built up by everyone to be this ruthless killer, and he's had to live up to that. He's probably had high expectations placed on him his whole life, and now all of that is about to come crashing down because he can't win at the one thing that he was made for, and that he's realizing that this is not what he should have been made for. He should have been allowed to be what he wanted to be and not made to just be a ruthless killing machine to have some greater purpose yeah humanity has greater purpose than that and he wasn't allowed humanity not just once he was reaped but his whole life so that's really sad yeah it 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 kind of takes away the comparison with Cato the younger because he didn't die resisting Mm -mm. do you think he died resisting in the books more so? No, I think he died resisting in the movies um, because oh, he had okay. a moment of clarity. And so maybe that p- part of that maybe was why they included that speech in the movie. It was be- to allude more strongly to the real-life Cato the Younger. Maybe. Yeah. It's complicated. <laughs> I would really love to see if she has any interviews about yeah. Cato. That would be great. In the meantime, though, Cato's mm-hmm. dead. Katniss, Katniss actually ends up killing him. So... In a, in a weird, very twisted way, she does end up defeating yeah. her one enemy um, that she built up in the arena. She ended his life. Whether or not she takes credit for it, I don't know. But technically speaking, she is the one 
who literally yeah. pulls the trigger and, the end, and all it. of her anger at him and all of her tension surrounding this big bad enemy comes down to a moment of pity it's not a moment of anger mm-hmm. it's not a moment of i beat you which is what she thought that she wanted and that she was going to get in this last moment she thought that they were going to overcome kato and instead his end is not this grandiose thing for her it's a moment of helping a whimpering child to die and neither is it a grandiose moment in the moment she kills him but neither is the moment she's expecting to come afterwards which is when they would be declared the winners so as as we mentioned the rule change that allowed for two victors to win as long as they're from the same district that's canceled. Mm-hmm. It's revoked. Claudius Temple Smith comes on and says, Haha, just kidding. May the odds be ever in your favor. Moan of silence, mic drop, and then you realize that only one of them yeah. can win. So Katniss immediately points her last arrow at Peta because after all this time, somehow she's convinced that he might still try to kill her. But she later she says she has a moment of more clarity. She says, You're not leaving me here alone. I say, because if he dies, I'll never go home. Not really. I'll spend the rest of my life in this arena trying to think my way out. That's on page 343. And in a way... Thinking about how she can get out of it. She is going to do that. What could she have done differently? She's going to be in this arena forever. But PETA is going to help her Mm -hmm. with that. It's, It's why they get together later is because he helps her when she wakes up screaming. Exactly. And... I mean, she she needs that. So here, Katniss takes her first big action against the Capitol and the games without really seeing it as that big of a deal. Uh, she says, without a victor, the whole thing would blow up in the game makers' faces. They'd have failed the Capitol, might possibly even be executed slowly and painfully while the cameras broadcast it every screen in the country. Page 344. In a way, mm-hmm. she almost wants a reverse Hunger Games for the game makers yeah and is going all the way against them and you kind of see this pattern being repeated later on in the series with um a certain antagonist who appears later on in the book at the very end you see this repeated um she wants the game makers to be punished and this is how she's going to essentially put it on them um you don't have a victor Mm -hmm. cool that's on you and then right as they're about to eat those berries and take their lives, take their own lives. It is announced that, oh my gosh, here we have the two victors, plural victors of District mm-hmm. 12, Katniss Everdeen and Peta Mellark. Yep. Ta-da! She's won. They've both won. And what yeah. a victory that is. And we're on to chapter 26. Do you want to read the summary? Thanks, Lydia. Back so, to you in the studio. Chapter 26. Back to you in the studio. Well, we're looking at a chance of some severe depression uh, followed by a light sprinkling of angst and a lot of medical jargon. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> so, uh, summary of chapter six, Katniss and Peta are lifted out of the arena into a hovercraft. Peta is rushed into surgery. Katniss is in the room, but she's held behind some kind of glass wall. So she pounds on the glass and begs to be let in, but no one pays attention to her. Uh, you know, she's screaming for a long time, unable to leave and wondering why she's still watching the surgery. When they land at the training center later on, she screams for Peta again, but she's sedated. She wakes up restrained in a hospital bed with several IV drips. The Avox girl that she recognized from before the games comes in with her dinner and lets her know that Peta is still alive. 
Katniss eventually wakes up to find herself unrestrained and not drugged. All of her wounds and scars are gone, even old ones that she's had for years. She finds Effie, Haymitch, and Cinna, uh, and surprisingly hugs Haymitch first. Katniss finally has dinner, and she has dinner with her stylists, and they can only talk about themselves, what they were doing, or how they felt while the kids were dying in the arena. Katniss gets dressed for the interview ceremony and is taken to a rising platform underneath the stage. Hamish whispers to her that the Capitol is very, very angry at her for outsmarting them and making fools of the game makers, and Katniss realizes that she is in more danger now than she was in the arena. Yeah. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. They're out of the arena, and now the real fight begins. Peeta's fighting for his life, and Katniss is fighting to keep her family alive again. And she's she's still having to play the politics game. So she watches the doctors operate on Peeta, trying to save his life. And she says, It's like being home again when they bring in the hopelessly mangled person from the mine explosion, or the woman in her third day of labor, or the famished child struggling against pneumonia, and my mother and Prim, they wear that same look on their faces. Now is the time to turn away to the woods, to hide in the trees until the patient is long gone, and in another part of the seam the hammers make the coffin. But I'm held here both by the hovercraft walls and the same force that holds the loved ones of the dying. How often I've seen them, ringed around our kitchen table, and I thought, why don't they leave? Why do they stay to watch? And now I know, it's because you have no choice. That's pages 347 to 348. So that actually hit really hard for me because... um very, very unfortunately, very sadly, my family actually had to put our older dog, a yellow lab named Coda, we had to put him to sleep about two weeks ago at the time of this recording. Um, it was very sudden. You know, he, he was very old and was on his last legs, literally. But it came down to he collapsed and had a series of seizures uh, one afternoon and we knew his time was up. Even so, you know, we, we took him to the vet and got the seizures under control. And there was this moment where, you know, the vet presented us with all of our options. You know, we could take him in for surgery to try and operate on his brain. We could try and give him medication to stop the seizures and send him home, or we could put him down. And the vet, you know, the vets were great. And they essentially gave us our options and then let my family and I talk about it amongst ourselves without being in the room. But it was an easy decision to make to put Coda down because we knew that his time was here. There wasn't any point in trying to prolong his suffering. It was the kindest thing to do. But then after we made that decision, there was this awful moment where, and it seemed to just never end, where my dad, my brother, and I, we were sitting in this sterile vet hospital room, and we didn't have Coda with us. So Coda was somewhere in the back hooked up somewhere. We didn't know where he was. We just knew he was back there somewhere suffering by himself. And then we knew, okay, in as soon as the vet comes back in and we sign these documents, Coda's life is going to end. It's going to, it's, you know, he, we're going to put him down. That'll be the end of it. And just knowing that that moment was coming, the buildup to it, and, and just knowing that I was about to say goodbye to this life that had meant so much to me as I was growing up, because he was a fucking fantastic dog. But in that moment, just waiting, all I wanted to do, the vet even said, you guys don't have to stay when we put him down. If you want to leave, that is okay. And we will put him down. He will be taken care of. He'll be put to sleep. We'll take care of it. We'll call you when his paw print is ready to get picked up. It'll be fine. 
And I almost expected my dad to leave. I almost expected my brother to leave. And I wanted to leave. Like, the the thing that I wanted most in the world in that moment was to run out of that vet hospital room, get back in my car, and drive away. There was nothing I wanted more um, in that moment. But even though I wanted to run and leave the vet, I knew I couldn't and that I never would. You know, this was a family member who was about to go on to the next journey of his life, and I owed him that much to stay by his side, even though we all knew the outcome. And it was this feeling of, I desperately do not want to be here in this moment, but there, I, I cannot leave. I would not leave. There would be no convincing me to leave whatsoever. It's absolutely true. You don't really know it until you see it, either when you're putting down a pet or watching someone at the end of their life, um, you know, someone on hospice care, perhaps waiting in the hospital for someone who might have just had a serious accident. You know, why don't they leave? Why do they stay? And it's very true because you have no choice. You have, obviously, you always have the choice to leave, but deep down when you're waiting and you're knowing and you're just like in that endless moment of whatever's coming, you know that no matter what, you have to stay where you are. You have to be there for your loved one because there's the other option is just incomprehensible and not even an option at that Mm. point. Kind of a dramatic take on that. (laughs) <laughs> but I, I definitely felt that a lot a couple weeks ago when we when we put Coda down and just knowing, God, I want to leave so bad. I wanted to do what Katniss does. I actually was thinking about that, how Katniss always runs and leaves as we were waiting for the vet to come back in. And I knew, you know, you, you have no choice when it's someone you mm-hmm. love. Pet, human, otherwise, it's you cannot go anywhere. Wow. Yeah, definitely a very hard thing to experience. Yeah. And it almost takes experiencing it to really understand it. At least it does for Katniss here. Mm-hmm. Like you, you exactly. really don't know right. how it feels until you're in that situation. And it's your own choice. And for her, you know, her her mother and Prim were always kind of the saviors. You know, they were never the ones on the kitchen table. Right. And like when we see in Catching so, Fire, she stays with Gail. Oh, yeah. So absolutely she does. I think... That's part of her character development is definitely learning to be there for the people that she loves and that sometimes being there for the people you love really hurts, but it's something that they deserve from you. Absolutely. Yeah, tough, tough shit. shit. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we meet an old friend in this chapter again. Uh, the redheaded Avox girl. I wonder what her name know. is. Yeah. I wonder what her name is. Uh, but she delivers food to Katniss, and Katniss asks if Peta made it, and the girl nods. It says, she gives me a nod, and as she slips a spoon into my hand, I feel the pressure of friendship. It's been previously, like before the games, it was so hard for Katniss to consider anybody a friend. So maybe right. maybe she's come out of this with a little bit more trust because she has no other choice. I think we also forgot to mention going back that when she's talking about the tributes and how they've been uh, turned into the uh, mutations, she doesn't hesitate to call their right. deaths a murder which right. she didn't before. So we're seeing a lot of character development here. Now she's considering, oh, all the rest of the tributes were murdered, first of all. And now she's feeling as if she has friends yeah. and people who care about her. And she's allowing that friendship. Yeah, a lot a lot has happened at once. And I think a, that amount of stuff has really forced her to change. 
um, and forced her to make that snap decision of solidifying what she thinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is she. She's growing into herself. So yeah, she goes looking for Peta and finds Effie, Hamish, and Cinna. Hugs Hamish. Not going to comment on that. We'll talk about Hamish later because mm. I have some words. But <sighs> Candace's interactions with the stylists. Octavia seems the most sensitive to her situation. She slips Katniss an extra roll under the table, but Flavius and the others are definitely not. Flavius is jealous that Katniss got a full body polish. Not a flaw left on your skin. And they keep talking about their favorite moments and how exciting it was and how shocking and how they almost fainted and... Katniss thinks everything is about them, not the dying girls and boys in the arena, on page 354. So we've talked before about how an entire nation can become so desensitized to violence against children that they actually enjoy it, and that's part of what we're seeing in Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which takes place in the 10th Hunger Games, when this thing is still new. But, like I've said before, it's a dystopia. We're already there. Mm -hmm. And if we're not careful, we'll be at Hunger Games levels of just callousness. We've seen school shootings, young black boys killed on the streets and on video. And we see so much death on the internet and in the news. And yet it's taken so long to implement systemic change. And we're not even there yeah, yet. Yeah, and we're not even there yet. We just we just started. And so in a way, we are no better than the Capitol people. Mm-hmm. We're no better than the people who watch the Hunger Games because they enjoy it. Because we, exactly. we accept it. And accepting is a short step away from enjoying. So kudos to Suzanne. <sighs> Uh, because this is the purpose of dystopian literature, which is we think we're in the districts, but we're really in the capital. We think we're in ancient Greece, but actually we're in Rome. And the world of The Handmaid's Mm -hmm. Tale isn't so far away, especially when the president is ordering military personnel to shoot actual bullets at protesters. Right, right. It's interesting that Flavius is envious of her full body polish that she's totally clean and flawless on the outside when on the inside now she's definitely going to be suffering from a lot she has endured a lot Mm -hmm. but even afterwards despite the fact that her body is now clean her mind is ravaged by what just happened to her which is something again to really point out like oh i'm so jealous of the fact that you you look perfect And it's like, really, you're jealous of her? Because look at what she just went through to get to this point. Mm -hmm. Are you really going to tell her that you're envious? And they're, like you said, they're so far removed that they don't even really realize what they're saying until, you know, much later on in the series. Something that always struck me as odd, one of the questions that I, I hear a lot, and that I've asked other people and that other people have asked me, is where were you on 9 11? How old were you? What do you remember? And that's a question that a lot of people in our generation have asked one another and a lot of you know older people as well have asked one another because it's like, what were you doing? What, where were you when this happened, when this life-changing moment happened? And then you go on to remember, oh, I remember where I was when I heard about the Orlando shooting or I heard about you know good things like here's where I was when I found out I got into Pepperdine. And, and those moments stick with you, but 
people also like to talk about those moments. And it, it's interesting because we're we're living in a save in a, in an age of imaging and constant branding. People are trying to be connected all over the world and put themselves in places to be connected and show solidarity. And I think a lot of that show of solidarity is great, but this instance with the stylists is really showing the dangerous side of it where they're saying like, oh, I was getting my hair done. Here's where I was when this happened to me. Here's how I reacted to it. Not, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this has just happened. But no, this is how this has affected me. Um, and I found a really interesting article. It's uh, by the Diamondback and it was by Manuela Lopez um, Restrepo. And essentially she's talking about here the Notre Dame Cathedral fire that happened um, a few years ago. I think it was actually a year ago now, maybe just a year, but how people were posting pictures of themselves um, in front of Notre Dame or in Paris even, not even in front of Notre Dame, but essentially posting pictures of themselves in front of Notre Dame and saying, I am so devastated by this, can't believe it, blah, 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 which was good because we needed this was a this was a, a worldwide tragedy the loss of that of that cathedral and i think we all feared for the worst that the total structure would be gone but what uh Restrepo is really pointing on here is that it's a lack of self-awareness and it has and it comes out always at the worst time during global catastrophes such as the paris uh, cathedral burning down. Uh, you know, every single time it's hard to watch. Let me just read exactly from this article. Quote, my earliest memory of this phenomenon is from, from the 2015 shooting in Paris when gunmen massacred 130 people at or near the uh, Bataclan Theater. The hashtag Pray for Paris was created as a tribute for the victims in the city, but influencers found still found a way to infiltrate the sentiment with pro vo provocative photos of themselves that simultaneously displayed their well wishes for the Parisians and their gloriously toned physiques. If you're one of those people who post, posted a photo when you visited Notre Dame, I don't want you to feel attacked. I understand that witnessing a human marvel like that in person is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and it really is a shame that some parts of it may not survive the flames. But this is about understanding what social media is doing to our ability to process tragedies. Somewhere in the mix of the subtly flexed visits to Paris, you are implying that your proximity to the place in question has given you this reason to post a tribute for your own personal loss. Essentially saying that, hey, you're putting yourself out there and you're and you're saying this is how it's affected me personally. That way you can post that tribute to your own your own loss as well. And that's exactly what the stylists are doing here, where they're essentially saying, here's how it affected me, and here's how I'm involved, and here's how I can be important in this moment because this is what I was doing and here's why I can tell people that I was doing or what I can tell people I was doing at this time. Yeah. Which is interesting. You definitely see that. And more recently, probably we had that with graduations, with people posting their own graduation photos, quote oh, unquote, in that. honor of the people who can't have their graduation ceremonies this year. It's not an honor, it's making it about you. And even more recently, posting a black square on Instagram and tagging it Black Lives Matter, but doing nothing in your daily life to combat racism or share resources or information or like thinking about it at all just going right. back to your normal right. life and your normal posts when this is a normal shaking event and it's not about us it's not about tracking who posted the black square they must be an ally they must not be it's not about street cred 
or social media cred, it's about who you actually are. And that's what we miss a lot in the performative nature of social media and in the performative nature of the capital, is that honesty of genuine compassion and genuine experience rather than self-branding and like Restrepo says, self-imaging, like making mm-hmm. everything about promoting yourself. Right. Because this is clearly not a new phenomenon for these for these stylists. In a way, it's looking to the post-apocalyptic effects of social media. Once social media and the internet are gone, what are we going to have? Right. Deep stuff. <sighs> mm-hmm. Can I be mad at Hamish here for a second? Oh, please be. <sighs> So he tells her Peta's already there, which apparently means he's in love with her. And when she asks if he thinks she's there too, she says, since he says, since when does it matter what I think? Son of a bitch, Hamish. Literally the entire fucking book, man. Yes, the entire game. She's been trying to follow what you want. She's been taking invisible cues from you it obviously matters she just nearly died can you please be straight with her for one second god Ugh, i know we're finding out here that katniss is in a lot of trouble because she defied the capital yeah. and really her only defense can be that you were so madly in love that you couldn't imagine not being together anymore yeah. so this is where she's kind of starting to realize oh shit i'm in a lot of trouble and realizing she's in a lot deeper than she thought yeah She has a lot to unravel, but she's not going to do it now because she's about to be thrown into the spotlight to be reunited with PETA and uh, be interviewed for the second time. The wider world is also an arena, but there's a different set of rules for different players. And she has more of a disadvantage out here than she did in there. And so she's a lot more vulnerable. Oh man. And that ends chapter 26. Yes. Wow. It's a lot. Hmm. Uh, Just your average heavy episode. Yeah, what else (laughs) have you come to expect from us? We make everything heavy. At this point, it's just our MO. Yeah, if we don't overanalyze stuff, who would we be Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. we didn't address every single little thing about every single little sentence in these chapters? And you can guarantee that this episode has been cut down from its original length. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> so to spare Lydia the rest of that work, um, we'll just go ahead and click off here. Remember that there are links in the description in the show notes to support the protesters and the Black Lives Matter movement. You can donate for bail funds. You can donate to Black-owned businesses and nonprofits in this time. Or if you can't donate, tell your friends and donate if you can or have them donate. Go to a protest if you if you feel you can, if you feel safe to do so. Um, please stay safe. You know, wear a mask. Take, take protective measures like not wearing contact lenses, which is not something I did. I did wear my contact lenses to the protest on Monday night. Probably a dumb idea. But, you know, have, have a backup plan. Have a way out mm-hmm. and make sure someone knows where you are if you do go to the protest. And remember to keep spreading the word and make sure that the proper and true information is getting spread. And just don't spread the fake news. Do your research. Do your homework. Make sure the right information is getting out there. And keep loving everybody, you know, as much as we can. Let's let's band together and get through this together. Um, because this is a movement that is coming, has been coming for a long time. Let's make this count. Yeah, it's time to get shit done. So get shit done. Um, there will be links in the description. Please... 
please stay safe and do what you can to stay safe. Uh, so two weeks from now will be our final episode about the Hunger Games. Uh, and after that, we'll have a bonus episode about Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Maybe two. Don't know yet. It's a long book. It's fucking 500 pages. Ah! But then we'll be taking a season break, and we don't even know what we're reading next. So if you have any thoughts on that, or if you have any thoughts on what we said today, or Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, or anything that you'd like us to discuss, uh, you can contact us on Twitter at Let's Unpack Pod or email us at doitforthevamps at gmail.com. And as always, rate and review us. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, finally, uh, CastBox, and probably other podcatchers that you would use. So thanks for listening. Stay safe. Let's get this bread. You made a sourdough starter. I did make a sourdough (laughs) starter. Her name is Georgia. She's doing great. Thank you for asking. All the blessings to Georgia. Yes. So we are getting this bread. I am currently getting this bread. Yes. Well, until next time. (laughs) See ya.